Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everyone. My name is Phil. Um, I'm really excited to be sharing the Bible with you again this morning, and a special hello to all five of you who are excited about that as well. If you open your calendars today, um, you will notice that it is December. And what that means is we're in the period of the Christian calendar, traditional Christian calendar known as Advent. Um, The word Advent comes from the word Latin adventum, as we all know, uh, which means coming toward, coming toward the birth of Christ. And this is the season where Christians are invited to start to slow down what we're doing and come in preparation to remember the birth of Jesus. It is perhaps, I was thinking, the Christian equivalent of the airplane pilot asking you to return to your seats Switch off your electronics, fasten your seatbelts and look out the window because we are coming home. However, if we did a quick word association with the word Advent with us this morning, I suspect um, if I asked you what word comes to mind when you think of Advent, then many of us probably have a different thought immediately. I strongly suspect that our instinctive word that comes to mind is little less preparation for the birth of Jesus and more preparation for eating chocolate every morning. Because even us as Christians, many of us have allowed our society to override the Christian origin of Advent with yet another reason to eat and buy chocolate. Now, as some of you know, uh, my Bible teaching is usually very short and devoid of content, so let me add some filler with the history of the Advent calendar. I am told by the interweb that like all good things, there are competing creation stories. Um, But the one I enjoyed the most um, is that the first Advent calendar was made in Germany in the late 19th century for a child named Gerhard Lang. Lang's mother stuck 24 tiny sweets to a square of cardboard. You've got to ask if there's any adhesive-based poisoning going on when he ate them, um, for her son to eat over the Advent period. Then as an adult, Gerhard had a great idea and made uh, the first printed Advent calendar and sold them to the public. A few years later, he then introduced the concept that we, most of us now know, the little doors, so each one has an element of surprise. Now, I like Advent calendars just as much as the next person. Um, my, my grandma, who passed away this year, actually bought me an Advent calendar pretty much every year up till a few years ago. Um, and in fact, I've already completed one this year. Um, a church friend bought me and my wife one just to get through November, which was an amazing gift. Um, I was, however, bitterly disappointed to realize the absence of chocolate from the 25th to the 31st and realized it was not a misprint, but actually I would have to plow through without any sugar. However, as we open this Advent season of teaching, we are going to have two teachings this morning, um, and Kenny will speak to us on the 19th as well. Um, This is a renewed opportunity for us to decide that perhaps Advent is something we have forgotten. 
Perhaps like me, your primary word association is actually just a chocolate calendar, and that's something that you could reconsider. Perhaps because of the Advent calendar, you've actually just unconsciously dismissed a whole season as simply a commercial construct, which it is not. Or perhaps a Christian Advent season is something you have simply never slowed down to look at. So whatever the case, the invite for you this morning and this month is to return to your seats, switch off your electronics, fasten your seatbelt and attend to the present moment as we approach the mind-shattering reality of the birth of Jesus in human form. Now, apologies to you who sounded, thought that might sound like the end of a sermon. That's actually just the introduction. Um, like I said, short and devoid of content. Instead, um, I'm starting our two-part teaching by looking at the reality that Jesus has already come into the world. In the Christian tradition, this is known as the Incarnation. Um, that might be an unfamiliar word to some of you, so it can be helpful to think about it this way. Jesus was God in human form, God with flesh, or if you like, God con carne. The incarnation, God con carne. So if you would like to open your Bibles with me this morning to Paul's letter to a church in a place called Philippi, it's known as Philippians in our Bibles, in the, it's in the first quarter, sorry, the last quarter, um, of the library of books that we call the Bible, um, and we're going to pick up Paul's writing to this church in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, most of what I've just read is actually a poem, um, and it's among the densest and richest revelation of Jesus and God in the New Testament. So this morning, I'm going to walk us through three things that this can remind us for the Advent season. Number one, it reminds us what God is like. Number two, it reminds us why God came. And um, number three, it reminds us what God wants us to do about that. So number one, it tells us, reminds us what God is like. And here's my opening question for you. What is the God you believe in like? It sounds perhaps like a really obvious question and many of us will have immediate answers. But if I was to go around all of you and ask different quest this question to all of you, um, you would have some very different answers. And the truth is some of those might in fact contradict each other. So let me ask you a second question. How do you know God is like that? How do you know God is like that? Throughout history, claims of gods who exist and what they have been like are countless. 
whether it's through the historical lens of maybe the Greek and Roman gods that some of us might be slightly familiar with, or perhaps the modern lens of the God from different world religions. There is no single definition of who God is and what he, she, or it is like. Questions like, are they even here? Do they like us? Are they angry? Can we know them? Do they interact with us? Do they care how we live our lives? Are they even interested in us at all? None of these are a given, both within and outside the church and within and outside of ourselves. All sorts of different answers exist based on our view of the world, our personal experiences of our lives and maybe religion, and especially what we've been told by other people. So what do you think God is like, and how do you actually know that? As a Christian, I have a route to some very clear answers to those questions, and not just because I've decided them, nor because I've sat down and thought it out and worked it out in my own mind, and especially not because I've created a God that fits my desires and my hope of what I want him to be like. I have clear answers to those questions because it's been revealed to us by the actions of one particular God through time. Next time you perhaps wonder, which I think most of us do, what the point in the Bible is, then remember this, that part of it is because the people who wrote it are witnessing to you and I about a God who revealed himself to them and who they believed in. And they thought it vital, inspired by that God, to write it down so you and I can be confident in that as well. Theologian uh, Walter Brueggemann puts it this way. He says, Everything depends on our confession of God. The God of the Christian Bible is not to be understood by some general category of lowercase God. In the Bible, this God makes a break with all cultural definitions and expectations. The God of the Bible distances himself from the other gods who are preoccupied by their rule, their majesty, their well-being in the plush silence of heaven. He goes on and says, Those other gods offer no model for faithful relationship, for steadfast solidarity, but only for occasional self-serving alliances with humans. The primary disclosure of the Christian Bible is that God There is God in heaven who makes a move towards earth to identify a faithful covenant partner responding to their groans of oppression. And this is why I wanted to start our teaching this morning in these words from Paul to the Philippian church because they, as well as being incredibly rich and the understanding of Jesus, this poem is probably the earliest understanding of the human birth of Jesus from the perspective of those who knew him and grew his church. It is very likely that the letter that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi was written before the gospel writers, that is the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, before they wrote down their own memories and eyewitness accounts of Jesus. In fact, the verses that I read, which we're going to come back to in a moment, is almost certainly a quotation of a poem from Paul, which pre-existed even what he was writing there and then. It was a poem circulating in the early church among those who had seen Jesus alive and risen. And therefore, that makes it perhaps the oldest testimony of the character of Jesus that we have today. 
So let's return to that poem afresh and see what the incarnation of God, the God Konkani, tells us about what God is like. I'm just going to reread some of those verses in a different version this time, the message version, which takes the Bible and puts it into language that might come alive more quickly to us. The message version says this, Think of yourselves the way Jesus Christ thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but did not think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. But when the time came, he set aside his privileges of being God and took on the status of a slave, becoming human. Having become human, he stayed human and was incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death there could be, a crucifixion. So this morning, what is your God like? Is he like this? Because this is a God revealed in Jesus' human birth. I feel very strongly I want to give you a chance immediately to, to take hold of this. So I'm going to do something slightly, slightly different. Um, I'm going to invite you to pause now. You might want to close your eyes or look away from the screen. And I'm just going to read out three simple characteristics that come from that poem, from that passage Paul writes. And just give you the chance to sit with those and invite Jesus to reveal himself to you again. Jesus chose to give up the advantages of being God so that he could be with us. Jesus chose to humble himself to a slave and a servant so that he could be with us. Jesus chose to give up his human life in a painful death so that he could be with us. This is what God is like, and this is how we can know it. So that was the first thing about the teaching around the birth of Jesus and what it tells us about God. Now, this is also slightly unusual, but if you just feel a sense of God speaking to you from that, then please have my full permission and even request to mute me, stay in that space, and engage with the Holy Spirit about what God is showing you about who he is. On the other hand, if you'd like to continue, then we're going to move into my second point, which is what it tells us about why Jesus came in human form. One of the realities hidden to us about those verses is the structure of the poem. In simple terms, um, the poem is shaped like a V. It starts in verse 6 up here with Jesus as God. It moves down with him in verse 7 coming in human form. And it reaches the bottom of the V shape with Jesus choosing to die on the cross. Then in verse 9, it has God the Father move him back up. And in verse 10 and 11, he reaches the peak again, being rightly in his place of Lord of all. 
So what this poem, which again is hidden in just the way it's written in our Bibles, is almost literally a downward arrow pointing us to the significance and the centrality of his death on the cross. Jesus' choice to enter the world in order to go to the cross. So why? Turn with me, if you would like to, um, this time to Matthew chapter 1, a bit more of a traditional Christmas reading, if you like. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, which means promised to be married, before they came together, we know what that means, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just and righteous man, was unwilling to put her to shame publicly divorcing her, so instead he decided to divorce her quietly. But as Joseph considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, at the time of Jesus, names were probably a lot more significant than they are now, um, and clearly here, none so much more than the name um, Joseph was told to give the child. Um, I don't know about you, but it seems kind of strange to me, the wording here. You shall name him Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Because, that's a very strange word to use. Um, I was thinking that if this was done in my life, my angel would have told my parents, you shall name him Philip because he shall love horses. I do not particularly love horses. There may be some horse lovers out there. I'm very neutral to your passion. I've ridden a horse once. I did not very enjoy it. <laughs> However... This is exactly how Jesus was named. And as obvious as it sounds, it's because Jesus was born in human form with an identity and a purpose. And that identity and that purpose was bound up in his name. And again, like so many other things, the name Jesus, because so many of us know it and is so widespread, we don't realize it had a literal and profound meaning. It literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is a name, the revealed name of the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, known as the Old Testament. And what it tells us about Jesus being named this, he's not a revelation of a new God on the scene or a new characteristic on the scene. But he is the physical human embodiment of the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, whose central mission and central promise was the salvation and the rescue of the world. As well as Jesus, therefore, being the physical embodiment of God, his name tells us that he is the physical embodiment of God's will. Yahweh saves. Um, through some of my work recently, um, one of the things that I do is I spend time um, kind of coaching and um, training Christian organizations how they can communicate um, what they're trying to do in society. And through my work, I was speaking to one evangelistic organization, and they, talk, they told me about this piece of research 
about what's happening with the Western church today, one of the reasons why so many Christians are actually moving away from the Christian faith. And they told me about some sociological research um, where there's a version now growing of Christianity that's called, kind of could be called anyway, moral therapeutic deism. So that's obviously um, an academic wordy phrase. What that means is that there's a kind of Christianity growing up that believes in God, that's the deism part, and believes that it's kind of it's important to be a good person, that's the moral part, and primarily sees faith as something, as a source of personal comfort to get through hard times and achieve what we want to achieve in life. That's the therapeutic element. It is a result of a Christianity that's been subtly but undeniably mixed with the culture around us in the West anyway that idolizes self-determination, self-improvement, and self-care. Now, the reason I bring that up is I don't know about you, but when I, I was obviously talking to them about this and read a little more about it, it hit uncomfortably close to home about sometimes how I work out my faith these days. In fact, for a number of years now, and as part of a kind of a spiritual development program I'm going through, I'm becoming increasingly aware of my lack of emotional response to the concepts of my personal sin and the importance and gratitude of being forgiven through Jesus. That's not to say that I think it's important that I feel like I'm a sinner, definitely not, and certainly not that I think it's important that I feel a sense of shame or judgment. Instead, I think it's critical and important that I should be feeling a sense of joy and gratitude that maybe I did in the past that I do not anymore. And I wonder if it's because I've got too focused on seeing Jesus as things other than a savior, as things that he undoubtedly is, as inspirational model, as a source of strength in difficult times, but not enough as a savior who was born into the world and died on a cross to free me and us from our sin. Perhaps I'm being too hard on myself and perhaps I'm just come to take it for granted, but either way, I know I personally am at risk of losing sight especially at this time of Christmas, as Jesus as my Savior, who came into the world to save us from our sins individually and collectively. I wonder how many of us might resonate with that. But also, even the last week, I'm finding this particularly significant. Um, because maybe like you, I'm hearing people say, in relation to the pandemic, science has saved us. One of my friends asked me, who's a Christian, saying, you know, do you not have hope now because of the vaccines that are on the scene? And of course, there's truth to that statement, because we all know in this year that we've been through so far, we do need saving in a sense, physically, economically, and societally in this moment from the consequences of this virus. And therefore, we are internally grateful to the scientists who have worked tirelessly to develop these vaccines that may be the ones that save us from the state that we're in. But when people ask me this and I think about it, I think, do I feel the same about the saving work of Jesus? Do we have that same sense still, or have we ever had it, that there is a real and significant problem that we need saving from? Have we ever fully accepted it? Have we forgotten it? Have we taken it for granted?
So this Advent season, this invite of the incarnation can uh, offer us to retake hold of what the angels told the shepherds at the birth of Jesus. When the angels told them, I bring good news of great joy for all of the people. Today in the town of David, which is Bethlehem, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So that's our second thing. The incarnation tells us and reminds us why Jesus came into human form. And the third thing as we come into our closing point is it then tells us what God wants us to do in response. Let's go back to Paul's words and let's back up slightly and let me read from you a few verses before, starting at verse 3 that runs into what we have looked at. Paul says to the church in Philippi this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on to what we have looked at this morning. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though being in the form of God and moves in. So Paul is using this in this context to this church. He's setting up the incarnational example of Jesus as a model for us to follow with one another. As I shared a few moments ago, I believe there's very real dangers of mixing our Western worldview and our Christian worldview, and I, for one, constantly fall into them. One of the easiest traps is taking all the comfortable parts of Christianities and letting go of all the maybe slightly more uncomfortable ones. We gladly accept the benefits that we have in Jesus, but we pay maybe less attention to the response that we could do as a result. As we have seen in this passage and talked briefly this morning, the incarnation is a deeply countercultural view of what gods were traditionally like. We have seen Jesus is the one who is willing to let go of status, let go of power, let go of place in order to reconnect with the people he loves so dearly, you and I. It's a God who is willing to give of himself for something we could not earn and we could not do for ourselves. So what Paul is saying here is the incarnation does not only tell us what God is like, it tells us what God wants us to do in response. The incarnation is a gift, absolutely. It's a gift, though, that once taken hold of, asks a response, and in that way is also an invite. Thousands of years before Paul wrote these letters, before Jesus came into human form, the prophet Micah, meaning someone with a special call to speak the words of Yahweh, the old God of the Old Testament, um, the prophet Micah wrote these words. God has told you, humans, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with your God? You see, the incarnation is Jesus' own obedience to that human life. The question now is whether we will choose also to become Christ-like. Will we follow Jesus' model and give up power to those around us? Will we humble ourselves in obedience to the will of God? 
Will we lay down our lives in love and service to others? I'm reminded right now of Ryan's testimony earlier as a wonderful example. What might this look specifically like in our lives right now or this week, this Christmas or this winter? Maybe the person we prayed for earlier in the service, that person who God might want us to reach out to is someone we can become God incarnate to this week. The band are going to lead a time of response in a moment, but let's just pause now and just reflect on where we've been this morning. Again, I invite you to close your eyes if you like, look away from the screen for a moment and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you if you haven't already and if he isn't already speaking to you. We began by thinking about how we know what God is actually like. And we explored the God revealed in Jesus as being so full of love and pursuit for us that he lowered himself from the status of God to a criminal execution. We thought about how Paul points directly to the death of Jesus on the cross, how Jesus' name literally means Yahweh saves. And we asked ourselves the question of whether in this Advent season we can again sense the joy of being saved. And finally, we thought about how Jesus' attitude in entering the world in humility for the sake of love is one we might choose to take on. So my prayer for us all, myself strongly included, is that in this Advent season we would glimpse again the significance and the challenge of Jesus' birth in human flesh. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.